You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Boroni-Peters. For the next few weeks, we're taking a break. And so we'll be playing you some of our favourite stories from the All The Best archives. We'll be back with new stories in July. In our first story, a group of kids stumble upon something small and vulnerable. In our old suburb, which existed at the dawn of dial-up, time was a small thing. Most of the local kids spent long afternoons pinballing from door to door, down avenues dotted with one-storey shacks, hollering for fellow hooligans to come out and bike, wrestle and spit. Alyssa and I, along with Jamie Kay from Number 9, didn't run with our peers. Firstly, because we're Cantonese, and the Shanghainese kids thought we stank of century egg and ate dog for dinner. Secondly, because nobody else was brave enough to wander into the bush. What's the difference between mandarins and clementines? Jamie Kay asked one afternoon, while he pushed aside dry foliage, ready to forage for waratah shoots. He was peeling the fruit his mother gave him, ripping off tiny orange chunks and scattering them behind us in the dirt. The first time he did this, I shot him a questioning look. Breadcrumbs, he said, grinning, in case we have to run back home from a dingo, or a hobo. Mandarins are baby versions of oranges, Alyssa said in her prissiest voice, and clementines are baby versions of mandarins. They're like the smallest piece of a fruity babushka doll. A babby what now? Babushka, idiot. Those Russian dolls that you open up and find smaller copies inside. Bro, I think clementines and mandarins are the same thing, I said. What does a little runt like you know, Alyssa sneered, flicking her ink spilled hair right in my face. Hard. I'm the one in year six. My sister and I have roughhoused everywhere in that piece of bush, along every inch of the creek, by the half-finished dog park, amongst the shredded remains of waterproof canvas that previously sheltered the homeless. There wasn't a single patch of earth that didn't have an imprint of my face slammed into it. One of Alyssa's bitchy comments would typically be my cue to reach into her roots, grab a handful and yank, until she was howling and ruddy with fury. Alyssa steeled herself, gaze predatory. Jamie Kay stepped back a bit, chewing on a nub of clementine, accustomed to our ship by now. Chill, both of you, I snapped. We're about to cross the bridge. There could be no fighting on the bridge. Bridges were sacred in our grandmother's stories, the zenith of the living world, only to be crossed carefully, if at all. Woods were sacred too, crawling with bone-faced spirits and cow-faced reapers who could sniff out hero blood and steal their skin away. Alyssa's favourite hero is Wu Song, who wandered into the woods, absolutely wasted, and managed to beat a wild tiger to death with a staff. I think she admired his blatant disregard for anything holy. Maybe that's why she would pick up every giant branch she encountered, slashing confidently at the undergrowth. Of course the woodlands we knew weren't the undying, lush forests from our bedtime yards. It was coarse and arid, filled with the smell of eucalypts and ant-eaten bird carcasses. There was a constant, unnerving buzzing, probably flies or cicadas, but the sliver of uncertainty made us sweat. These individual parts may have been ugly, sure, but the bush was as immense and arcane as the storybook trees that lived in our collective imagination. It had its own hidden dangers. 
The week before, Jamie Kay had spotted a red-bellied black snake lurking by the reeds. And once, Eugene Tran wandered too far across the bridge, wearing only jelly sandals. He had pierced his foot on a stray syringe. Allegedly, he ended up tripping for like five hours in the ER. Jesus, what's that stink? Jamie Kay asked when we were halfway across the bridge. The metal was groaning with each step, seemingly held together just for us. At either side flowed the creek that bisected the entire bush, littered with mammy noodle packets and ditch shopping trolleys, barely submerged beneath the film of coagulated moss. As Jamie Kay said, the air was thick, with a familiar, putrid stench. Ma liked to kill her household pests with rat poison, because she's non-confrontational like that. So I was used to the game of tracking down decomposing mammals by smell. There was an edge to the scent of rotting meat, a sharp, dissonant sweetness that was the first note to invade your nostrils. By the time we crossed the threshold and reached the clearing, we spotted what it was. Shaded by a dense cluster of gums, over a nest of desiccated leaves was a dead mongrel. She looked like a terrier with vague accents of a million other European pedigrees. A medium-sized dog with a swollen belly and patches of wiry amber fur. Every inch of her was covered in writhing sow bugs, dry blood and hodgepodge missing chunks. That's disgusting, Jamie Kay said impassively. Our neighbourhood was plagued with roadkill on the regular, which the council took its sweet time cleaning up. The sight of smeared fur and guts was just as part of our neighbourhood as jaywalking and teenagers secretly sipping VB near banmi stands. Wait, holy shit, look under it. Beneath the dog were five miniature versions of it. Babushka pieces. Dead little babushka pieces, half-formed and pink, their veins a startling blue from deoxygenation. Like their mother, the puppies were missing chunks of skin, probably having been feasted on by bush terrors. Holding our noses, we turned to leave, but the bodies in front of us abruptly shifted. Something burrowed out from beneath the mud, the stink and the pounds of flesh. Oh, Alyssa said, an odd note of laughter in her voice. It's the runt, just like you. The puppy was the size of my fist. I'll always remember it, the way she looked up at me when I crouched down, her tiny rosebud tongue lolling as if she had no awareness of the wreckage of carrion surrounding her. Her high-pitched staccato yelps chanting, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. It probably has rabies, Jamie Kay exclaimed. Rabies aren't a thing in Australia, dickhead, Alyssa said. Her eyes may have been wide and fearful, but she still couldn't resist being right. Well, it's got something. It's a cannibal. Wait, is that right? Is there a dog version of the word cannibal? Alyssa and Jamie Kay's ping-ponging exchanges were distant. All I could focus on was the creature cupped between my palms, mewling. I brought her against my chest, feeling her blood-coated maw move restlessly against my favourite Wings Club TV shirt, marking it as her own. Beneath the matted pelt of mud and drying lacerations, I made out a white patch blooming across her face, unfurling around her guiltless, dark eyes. It looked like a flower. I decided to call her Hua. Giving her a Chinese name meant Ma was more likely to let me keep her. That story was written and performed by Claire Cow. It was produced by Danny Stewart with sound design by Ellie Freeman. 
You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. Our next story is about finding love where you least expect it. As Sydney enters the world of online dating for the first time and discovers just how many single men in Melbourne are called Dimitri. It was September 2018 and I had found myself on the receiving end of inexplicable heartbreak. I was boarding my second flight for the day from LA to Melbourne, eventually to arrive home in Australia, alone. I had been heading to New York only 10 days prior with my very recently turned ex-boyfriend. The same instructional safety video that played on the flight over starts as I nestle into my American Airlines flight. Hello everyone, thank you for your attention. It's time to get you ready for takeoff. The gorgeous model on the tiny airplane screen alerts me to where the emergency exits are and thanks me for choosing American Airlines. We're happy to be your airline. You're most welcome, I say, reaching over for my plastic cup of Pinot Noir. The air hostess fires her brow at me as if to say, I'm supposed to say that. I smile nervously and dig around for the Xanax I smuggled onto the plane in a box of tampons. Two hours into my 16-hour flight, I wake up in a daze and immediately freak out. The plane emoticon has only moved slightly toward my destination. Xanax, you have failed me! Agitated, I dig around my tampon box for the second time and pull out a lorazepam, my last resort. I order another Pinot Noir and watch The Wolf of Wall Street until consciousness slowly slips away. There's a scene in The Wolf of Wall Street where Jordan Belfort gets so fucked up on quaaludes, the ensuing scene he causes results in being strapped to his seat. I can't even tell you. Why? Why? The scene I caused wasn't nearly as dramatic, and the drugs in my system nowhere near as potent. But as the Xanax and Lorazepam had a tea party in my central nervous system, although I was out like a light, I saw shadows that were moving rapidly toward me. I used my arms and legs to protect myself. Each time the large older man sitting to my left attempted to subdue me, in my head I thought it was my ex-boyfriend and all I wanted to do was hold him. I attempted to do so not once but three times. As the sun seeped into the windows and the air hostesses began handing out breakfasts of granola and fruit instead of airplane-quality red wine, I was just as mortified as Leonardo DiCaprio playing drug-fueled sex maniac Jordan Belfort. I'm terribly sorry, I explained to the large older man. I'm going through a bit of a rough time. That's okay, he replied. I'm from Chicago. My wife and I are going to Fiji. But I was back in Melbourne now, single for the first time in nearly half a decade, inexplicably heartbroken and living on the couches of those who were kind enough to deal with me. My antidepressants made it hard to cry and made the insides of my feet feel warm. 
Between countless you okay messages spilling into my phone and spam emails for funeral insurance that sounded strangely personal, I needed something to direct my volatile energy towards. At first, that something was drinking. Working at a bar meant whatever alcohol I wanted, at whatever quantity I thought was necessary, was at my fingertips. As many as 20 shots of whiskey or vodka or tequila or a likely combination of all three could be consumed in one shift. The after-shift drinking was a lot more rapid. Double parked with a shot of Jamison and a pint of beer, my psyche would erupt all over my workplace. There was something so inorganic about the concept of dating apps that almost deterred me from downloading Tinder. I used it for about five minutes five years earlier and uninstalled it promptly after coming across my friend's stepbrother's profile. His bio read, How much does a polar bear weigh? Enough to break the ice. Tinder five years later is everything I imagined it to be. I come across countless people I know by face but not name who are regulars at work, and the next time they come in I feel weird about it for no reason. Travel dude. Looks out over a mountain. Looking for a travel buddy, he writes, plus all the countries he has visited in emojis. Shirtless dude covered in traditional tattoos. We'll write the same Bukowski quote. Some people never go crazy. What horrible lives they must lead. 35-year-old dude still using dating apps for obvious reasons. We'll write, you use filters because of your insecurities. 15 people whose picture is them naked in public from the rear. 15 people named Dimitri. There's a lot of people named Dimitri on Tinder, I say to my friend Kale. A lot of Dimitris need dates, he replies, and who are you to stand in their way? During one of my swiping escapades, I pause on somebody. Austin. He looks like the type of person I would look twice at on the street while praying they don't sense my yearning. Tall. Well-dressed and the type of person who you just know reads for fun. His bio reads, Want to talk about Nicolas Cage for, like, two hours? We match, and my dopamine levels skyrocket. After a very courteous back and forth, we arranged to meet at the Tote on a Saturday night in early November. I intentionally bought two tickets to a gig and pretended I had a spare. He accepts my invitation and even tells me in the afternoon leading up to it that he's excited. When I arrived at the tote that evening, I was nervous enough to eat my entire fist. I half anticipated to meet someone much older than he said he was, or a few kids in a trench coat. But I'm relieved when I come face to face with all the reasons I invited him to begin with. He is handsome, wearing a denim jacket with a pin of Mr. Burns from The Simpsons shaking hands with Elvis, and taller than me even in heels. Yes! He tells me he's from Seattle. Austin from Seattle. I say, I'm Sydney from Perth. How much does a polar bear weigh? I think to nobody but myself. Enough to break the ice. We sit at the bar and he tells me about how the show Portlandia had a negative impact on Portland. I tell him about the time I made a severely bad first impression on Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys. He does an extremely good impersonation of Donald Trump and tells me of his missed opportunity to throw something at him in America, and I tell him about how I accidentally smuggled a gram of cocaine back into Australia. We get an Uber back to my new apartment in Carlton after he gets too embarrassed to keep making out in front of several bartenders. But just when I'm about to try figure out which key it is to open my front gate, he stops. You're probably a bit drunk. Are you sure you want to invite me up? 
The fact that he was nice enough to make sure makes me want to sleep with him even more. Yes, absolutely. As I get to know Austin from Seattle, I send him half-naked and naked photos of myself. He tells me which of my knees is his favourite and acts repulsed by my left armpit. We make up stories of how we met. I was riding a tandem bicycle alone and she jumped on. He was my camp counsellor. My braces and acne made me stand out from across the mess hall. We met at an orphanage. When I saw her, I knew I had to adopt her. He was my high school geometry teacher. Long story short, he isn't allowed to teach anymore. She's my cousin. But it's okay. We were born in different countries. I am lost in everything. His piercing blue eyes, his wonderful smile, his strange demeanour and even stranger sense of humour. The insides of my feet didn't feel warm anymore and I don't seem too phased by targeted advertisements for online therapists. So I'll go. But Sitting at a bar one evening, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston comes on. I tell him about the time I forced my ex-boyfriend to slow dance with me while high on copious amounts of MDMA. My ex said defiantly, as Whitney belted out the undying devotion I wanted to feel at the time. Shut up, I said to him. Don't ruin this for me. Austin laughs. (laughs) If that were me, I'd say, it's been nice to meet you, Sydney, but I must go back to America. Right now, before this song ends. I laugh at the thought, but my heart irrationally sinks. I'm just kidding. I'll slow dance with you anytime. I smile and nestle myself under his arm to rest my head on his shoulder. I'm glad you're here. Me too. When my ex and I first kissed, we were sitting alone in a dirty cubby house out the back of my friend's share house in Elstonwick, where we would later go on to live together some years later. We were the last awake after everybody had gone to bed. He had come to comfort his friend, who I worked with at a record store in St Kilda, after he went into one of his depressive spirals where he would brazenly mope around while forcing everyone to listen to Joy Division. Not the upbeat kind of Joy Division either, the joy division that makes you remember Ian Curtis killed himself. We were listening to Blink-182 and drinking heavily when he kissed me out of the blue. You're so pretty, he kept saying as he stared intently into my drunken eyes. I swooned and stayed that way for the next four years of my life. But that relationship eventually collapsed on the muggy streets of New York. How could I trust my own instincts? Were they even mine? Austin from Seattle was in Australia on a working holiday visa. It was hard to tell whether I was falling in love or I was only allowing myself to get close to somebody who wasn't going to be around for much longer. I consider calling it off with him several times but never actually get around to doing it. Instead, I introduce him to all my friends. 
We drink sparkling wine and watch B-movies every Sunday. We trade our fetishes. The part of a tree where two branches meet makes me dizzy. If the bark even slightly resembles a vagina, I have to sit down. It makes my head spin when you're sitting on a bus and you see other people miss the bus. Even more so the further they run when they're clearly not going to make it. All people have to do is say moisture really slowly. I whisper moisture into his ear several times as he pretends to erupt in ecstasy. Austin develops what appears to me more of an actual fetish for wearing my bathrobe. He beelines to it every time he enters my room and keeps it on while we have sweaty athletic sex. When he wakes up in my bed, he either tickles me, steamrolls me, or tries to lift me like a weight. You have to start with something smaller and work your way up to me, I tell him. I've already done that. The day after he told me he loved me, he gave me a bottle of Bombay Sapphire Gin and four bottles of fancy tonic water. I told him I felt like crying. Most people cry when they're drinking gin. I cry when people give it to me. I try to give it back to him before he leaves my apartment. It's not the gin I want to see. My eyes feel slightly watery after he's gone, and I feel like I've been hit by a truck full of my own feelings. I pull out my phone to let him know I need some space after spending five minutes googling synonyms for recentering. You take as much time as you need, he writes. I completely understand. Of course he does, I scream inside my own head. He's perfect! I silently urge him to go away so I won't have to deal with the emotional roller coaster inside, but the thought of him leaving makes me feel even more teary. A montage of different I love yous plays through my head. The first person I ever made out with when I was a teenager, drunkenly slurring it over the phone. The emotionally volatile punk guy I was sleeping with when I was 20. My former housemate who seemed incapable of interacting with women without thinking they were attracted to him. My ex-boyfriend and I saying it to each other, even as we both felt our good times as a couple coming to an end. Replaying the memories like this reduces the intense emotions involved to a hollow snapshot, like a Tinder profile, which is all Austin was to me at the beginning, a human advertisement in the superficial Tinder sphere. So why did this feel more real than anything that came before it? I write him another message, and after staring at the words on my screen for what feels like an eternity, I press send. I love you too. Here's where it ends, or where it starts. Austin and I hold each other close outside North Melbourne train station, shamelessly making out as busloads of people brush awkwardly by. I promise to send him cactuses in the mail, each one pricklier than the last and with various posties blood, both fresh and dry, or maybe even some threatening mail with letters cut out from various magazines. I know about your robe fetish. He tells me he'll find the finest sparkling wine in all of New Zealand for my arrival in October, roughly one year since flying home from New York, alone and heartbroken. We swear to finish our own B-movie. Two rogue sperm on the run from a copper IUD. Tomb womb. I tell him not to worry, that he'll probably find a Kiwi version of me. I've met women from all over the world. There's absolutely nobody like you. I smile, counteracting the feeling I've just swallowed a pile of rocks. 
I tell him I love him and I walk towards my train platform, though with a weirdo shaped hole in my heart. And I treat myself to a well earned cry on the train platform, as several other commuters glance at me with a panicked look in their eye. I wave like an idiot until we are both out of sight. I think about downloading Tinder again briefly after our Until Next Time, but with apologies to all the dateless Dimitris in Melbourne, I decide against it. I am Sydney from Perth in love with Austin from Seattle who lives in Wellington, and nothing could top that. That story was performed by Sydney Shaw. Ryan Pemberton was the supervising producer, with sound design by Alina Godwin. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Pham are our social media producers, and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.